0: It's Marissa Moran, and I am your host today for the Stroke Safe Podcast, supported by the ANPT and APTA. APTA. Looking forward to our conversation today with the authors behind the February 2023 Journal of American Medical Association Neurology Section article titled "Optimal Intensity and Duration of Walking Rehabilitation in Patients with Chronic Stroke," with Dr. Pierce Boyne, Dr. Darcy Riesman and Dr. Sandra Billinger. So I'm gonna first just introduce these uh, authors. Dr. Pierce Boyne is PT, DPT, PhD, NCS and is an associate professor in the Department of Rehabilitation, Exercise and Nutrition Sciences at the University of Cincinnati, where he co-directs the UC Neuro Recovery Lab and the PhD program in Health and Rehabilitation Sciences. Dr. Darcy Reisman, PT, PhD, and is professor and chairperson of the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Delaware and director of the Neuromotor Behavior Lab. Dr. Sandra Billinger is PT, PhD, and is a professor, vice chair of stroke translational research, assistant director of neuroimaging core, KU Alzheimer's disease research center, co-PI and co-director of an NIH-funded T32 brain health training program at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Her laboratory is in the research and exercise and cardiovascular health laboratory and has focused on exercise interventions to optimize vascular health and brain aging in older adults and people post-stroke. Yeah, let's let's jump into it then. I I wanted to start with a question um, towards you, Dr. Boyne. Um, I saw that, you know, you do quite a bit of research into high-intensity aerobic activity within the stroke population, and I wanted to see what kind of led your uh, interest in this field and what continues to drive your passion for
1: it. That's a great question. Um, I think mostly just following the evidence is what led me down this path, seeing in exercise science how Training at higher intensity seems to get better performance outcomes. And then a lot of preliminary work before we started down this line of research in, in neurologic rehabilitation seemingly to indicate that intensity is a really important factor that drives outcomes. I think beyond that, it also just kind of feels right <laughs> um, to, to focus on working harder. I think what, you know, my clinical experience was that You know what I learned in school. uh, You know to be very hands-on and facilitate more normal types of movement. These kind of previous types of practices that we're now moving away from. When I kind of experienced that, I almost felt like it was um, more clinician-centric, and and, you know, like I'm doing something to uh, a patient or stroke survivor. Whereas this feels more um, patient empowering to me. Like let's Mm -hmm. challenge you to figure out what you can do. And I, I think that. Yeah, it just has a it also has just has a better feel for me for like what I think our role is to help empower patients, you know, improve their ability to, to the greatest extent possible.
0: Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I can't can't agree with you more about trying to find out what patients can do and how hard we can push them. Darcy, would you like to share that's kind of what what brought you into um, the research for looking at high intensity aerobic activity and what um your passion is in it?
2: Um, Yeah. So I will say that I got brought along. So I was in parallel to Pierce doing work in high intensity training and in parallel to Sandy doing her work um, using a recumbent stepper. I think we were all kind of doing those things in parallel to each other. I really became interested in um, this really based on the literature and just reading the literature and seeing what Rich Mako's group was doing actually really, you know, this is almost 20 years ago now mm-hmm. um, and really became intrigued in the success that they were having. And for me, it actually really made a lot of sense because I also have a really strong background in motor learning. And one of the things we know that drives motor learning and neuroplasticity is repetition. And when you walk at a higher intensity, you generally get more, practice right cuz you get more steps and so for me it, it there was a, that kind of combination that i i really liked in in doing the the high intensity work
0: and then how about uh from you uh, sandy can you share with us what kind of drives your passion for this and what made you join
3: my area of interest in and in thinking about uh, aerobic intensity really stems from early work that i was doing in the the 90s and watching uh, Rich Macko and many others, you know, starting to do exercise testing and think about exercise prescription. And we just didn't have a good understanding of how exercise would benefit people both stroke. I have a real strong background in cardiovascular physiology and spent a lot of time in cardiac rehab working. And so I knew these patients had cardiovascular disease and that exercise could potentially prevent a second stroke. Um, But we really didn't know the exercise dosing. And when I looked at the 2004 exercise recommendations, you know, it was really based on very limited stroke research. And, 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 And still, you know, even though I was part of the and led the 2014, we still haven't had much evidence to really look at dosing such as moderate intensity, high intensity. It's still largely based on what we know for older adults. And so I think this research that we're doing here and and others along the way are really driving the field forward in, you know, what is the optimal intensity uh, and duration for exercise to really help, in this case, walking outcomes. But I think there's a lot more that we can explore in cardiovascular health, brain health, uh, cognition um, that I'm really
0: excited about. Great. I mean, and we'll touch on it, but some of the secondary outcomes you guys did, I was even more intrigued by, and you just touched on that a little bit, Sandy, like what else can it be besides just walking outcomes? Um, So let's jump into the article. For those who have yet to read the article, this study assessed the optimal training intensity, high intensity interval training versus moderate intensity training, and the minimum training duration, four, eight, or 12 weeks, needed to maximize improvement in gait outcomes with chronic stroke defined as greater than six months post-stroke. The main outcome of this study was the six-minute walk test. Could you briefly describe the similarities and differences in interventions between the two intensity groups?
1: So the main factor we were trying to manipulate was intensity. And for the high-intensity interval training group, the goal was to train it at vigorous intensity. Um, whereas, you know, the moderate group was training at a moderate intensity. So those were primarily defined by aerobic intensity zones where 40 to 60% of heart rate reserve is, is traditionally thought of as a moderate intensity zone and getting above that 60% heart rate reserve threshold is more of a vigorous intensity. So the other thing that was different between the groups is the interval training for the high intensity interval training group. And we did that because we've seen in, in our preliminary work and, and, and other studies. Studies, that we can generally get higher aerobic intensities and sustain them for longer when we use an interval training strategy versus doing just high intensity continuous exercise. So those are really the two main differences. It was really primarily about the intensity, but also using an interval training strategy to get there for the for the hit.
0: Let's move on to the next question. Uh, why did your team choose to do overground for 20 minutes and the 10-minute split into two separate sections?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, too. There's, you know, there's an infinite number of possible combinations, and there's, you know, not, there's not enough research to, to figure out the best way to do every detail. Um, so we you know, did the best we could by putting together you know, preliminary data and looking at, at previous evidence. So, we we decided to do overground training before and after the treadmill training based on some emerging evidence at the time we were designing the protocol about um, aerobic priming and consolidation effects. We were thinking, you know, the trend uh, in general, you get higher heart rates training on the treadmill versus overground. And so, we were thinking that, you know, we wanted to capitalize on that to uh, that priming effect, so to speak, to help help you know learn overground training better after you know so you're kind of priming the brain to be more responsive to the overground training that happens after the treadmill bout at the same time there's some evidence that um, aerobic priming might also be important for consolidation so consolidating learning that has happened just previous to that aerobic intense bout Um, and so that's why we had people practice overground training before um, getting on the treadmill there's not I don't know that I, I there's no convincing evidence that I've seen specific to this application that one is more important than the other or that it even matters like that you know how exactly it's paired um, but that's kind of the based on the best available evidence we kind of designed it in that way for that reason.
0: Yeah it makes sense from a you know task uh, specificity and also salient standpoint just being actually that's more their real world so i did i appreciate that but
1: oh, yeah, i was actually yeah. i'm sorry i should add in yeah so the the overground tra- so in our in some of the preliminary work we did only treadmill training and really did not see very good translation into overground gait outcomes so people's gait improved a lot on the treadmill and they went particularly people who used assistive devices would get off the treadmill and immediately go back into habit patterns that were very slow and different from what they were capable of doing on the treadmill. And so from that, and we've seen in other this that same phenomenon isn't specific to interval training. It's been seen in other all kinds of studies post-stroke too. Um, we realized that it's probably probably really important to also train over ground. So I think just the treadmill is sometimes helpful for boosting speed and aerobic intensity, but. I think ultimately it seems like having some overground practice is probably really important too, if the goal is to translate that those gains off the
0: Right. Yeah. And, and that, you know, leads into what I was really wondering: how did clinicians maintain a higher heart rate while they were doing the overground training? Was there a, a program you guys had them following?
1: Yeah, that is a good question. We had we so we designed this in a, in a previous like preliminary study. And, and it is like the treadmill gives you some natural um, motivation <laughs> to keep going, because if you don't, you drift back and nobody wants to do that. Um, overground, you don't really have that same motivation. I think that's what you're getting at. Right. So what we did. So for the moderate intensity group, we just used heart rate zones. So the clinician is monitoring heart rate. You know, we have an, an iPod touch that was mounted on the forearm. Bluetooth connected to a heart rate monitor, so we're getting real-time heart rate data, and the clinician is is giving feedback to the person to speed up or slow down to maintain their heart rate in that moderate intensity target zone. For the high intensity group, um, it's even you know you're trying to get to higher intensities, and so it takes even more motivation. Um, we put markers on the floor, so um, cones or bean bags, and marked how far the person was able to walk in 30 seconds. So the, the high intensity interval training group was doing 30 second bursts, walking as fast as they could. And we would mark that distance for each burst. So then the, the person would then turn around and for the next burst, the goal was get past where you where you started last, last time, right? Try to get past that marker that you set from your previous best record. And then once they beat the record, we move the markers, you know, move the goalpost and then um, try to beat it again. And so it's just kind of continuous motivation to try to get past where you were on the last burst. Um, That seemed to be pretty effective for many, for most people to get the motivation going to like try to go as fast as possible in overground training. I'd like
3: to just add that the clinicians were highly motivated in this trial and did such a wonderful job. You know, they... They understood the the goals of this and what we were trying to do. And so, you know, I think some of the therapists we've talked as a group that, you know, they would see the confidence in in, in people doing overground walking, re- regardless of group. They, you know, they would see this confidence. And I think specifically for the HIIT group, as as they got more comfortable with that fast walking, you know, they could sense how to how to, you know, use their clinical judgment to really push them, motivate them and and get them to do those, um, the interventions. So it was really fun to, to see, you know, participants um, be excited along with the the therapists about the, the study in general. And so they just did a fabulous job.
0: Yeah, I think it makes a big difference, especially as a clinician, when you can see the change, like in session, it's just exciting to be able to push a, push a patient to be able to want to push themselves. And so I love that idea of making markers on the ground for overground hit training. That's, that's a great idea.
1: Oh, and one quick tip on that is we initially started out using cones actually in our preliminary study. I can't remember who it was. It was somebody, one of the therapists in, in Kansas or Delaware, I can't remember who suggested bean bags because you can move them with your feet. And so you can keep guarding someone while, you know, advancing the beanbag a little further, which was a brilliant change.
0: And that, and that idea, I'm assuming, got shared to all the other clinicians, a part of this. and
1: Yeah, so, the, yeah, that was, we did that during, while we were developing the final protocol for the study, so we did the whole trial using the beanbag approach. It was uh, it was just something we learned during startup that was, yeah, a good addition, I think.
0: How, so many HIT articles promote a six-week intervention. Why did you choose the time of 4, 8, and 12?
1: Yeah, it's another one of those decisions where there's really not great evidence to guide it. We chose a range that we thought would cover the spectrum of what's been studied in the past. For the most part, there are some hit studies in um, in healthy adults that are as short as like two weeks. And actually, I think there's one inpatient rehab study in stroke that did a protocol that was two weeks that felt a little too short for chronic stroke um, to really see changes. So, so we picked four as kind of our our minimum and. 12 does seem to be pretty close to the, the upper limit that we see across studies, and beyond 12 weeks, I think we probably start to have even more um, feasibility issues of like patients wanting to being willing to continue that long, and one in uncertainty about whether it would ever be feasible to translate that into clinical practice. Um, so that's really kind of what defined the boundaries for us, and then we definitely wanted even spacing between those uh, time periods to be able to see. Um, whether changes plateaued at any certain point or whether they just continue to accumulate throughout.
2: And there was one study um, that we had done with a very small sample of people, about only about 12 people, I think, with chronic stroke. It was published in the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy. I have to promote that since we're on the ANPT SIG call. Um, so th- where we had seen that in people living with chronic stroke, doing another... Fast treadmill walking protocol, not an interval training, but still fast treadmill walking and overground training, that clinical measures continued to change up to 12 weeks, right? So that study looked at four weeks, eight weeks, and 12 weeks and saw that it continued to change. And in fact, really not getting changes that you would consider important from sort of an MCID perspective in the six-minute walk until that 12-week mark. So I think, Pierce, we also kind of talked about that as, as being sort of helpful information, too, that we thought we might need up to 12 weeks.
1: That's right. I forgot that was the main driver for how we decided on that.
0: Right, well, let's get into uh, the outcomes and the uh, what you guys saw as the results. The mean change in the six minute walk test in the high intensity interval training group compared to the moderate um, aerobic training over 12 weeks was quite significant, 71 meters or 210 feet versus 27 meters or 88 feet. Despite these patients getting less steps during the interventions, can you elaborate on this and what you believe to be the driving factor behind this
2: difference? We actually have um Pierce wrote another paper with with members of the of the HIT team um trying to look at the key training parameters in the HIT study. Pierce, are you okay if I if I go
1: there yeah, with this? Yeah, please. That's where I was gonna okay. go to. Yeah. Okay.
2: So the paper, the paper is up um, as a preprint on MedArchive, and we can share the link to that. But basically it uses um an analytic method called mediation, which allows us to look at which of the training parameters that we can manipulate that we did manipulate mediate the potentially mediate the outcomes of the two interventions and really interestingly what we saw was it was speed it was speed on the treadmill and in and overground that really was the the key training parameter that was really responsible for the larger changes in the six-minute walk test in the HIT group. And so the other factor to mention though is that um, steps, steps during training were also significant. But the interesting thing about steps is that the HIT group got less steps, right? Because of the intervals, right? It's the stopping and starting. And so the what the mediation showed is that. The, the MAT group actually got more steps and those more steps were responsible for some of the good change we saw in the six minute walk test in the MAT group. So ideally what you would love, right, is you'd love to have the speed of the HIT group coupled with the steps of the MAT group. That is a clinical challenge, right? Because if you don't give people the rest breaks, then they can't get to the speed, right and so you know we've talked a lot as a team about you know these these active recoveries instead of stopping do you just you know slow the treadmill way down and have people walk and so they're still getting steps and you know there's so there's a, a lot of different ways you could think about this but i think the key takeaway from that paper is that it was really speed that was that was really the important factor of of all of the training parameters we looked at Intensity measures like heart rate, and it it really that it was really speed that came out to be significant. Pierce, anything you want to
1: add? No, or Sandy, that, co- that covers it well.
0: Yeah, that I found that really interesting. And you know, Darcy, you touched on this when you were just describing your passion for this. That we should assume that there's going to be a lot more repetitions when somebody's being pushed at higher speeds. Uh, but in fact, that's not what this showed. Um, and I I just I really enjoyed seeing that. Um, because a lot of times I think as clinicians, we feel like we have to continue to push the patient. And then they're just their ability to continue drops significantly. Um, so that was really good to see that we can give them that rest and be able to still improve um, in the six minute walk test.
2: I think the key factor there is these really high intensities, right? So when they're not when they're not uh, really high. I mean, you know, I
1: relative. I mean,
2: yeah. Higher than moderate, right? That's the key. I think if you if you are doing moderate intensity, so so the moderate intensity equates to slower speed the way we did it on the treadmill, right? Um potentially There, you're optimizing steps, which is which is critical, but you're not getting up to those really high those those much higher speeds. Because remember, in the interval where they were walking, they were they were walking as fast as they possibly could, which you can't maintain, right? You can't maintain that for twenty minutes, right? So, um, so I think it's that's the key. I wouldn't want the takeaway to be. I'm, I'm just like wearing my clinician educator hat now. I wouldn't want the takeaway to be that it's okay to give a lot of rest breaks unless you're doing this really high intensity and as fast as possible speed.
1: We've also, we did a preliminary study in, I think it was 2015, where we looked at how, how much recovery you give impacts how fast someone can go in subsequent bursts. And basically you, like 30 second recovery, you start to lose some speed because of fatigue. Um, this is on average among people with chronic stroke. There's individual variability, of course, but you know, around 30-second recovery, you start to lose some speed because of fatigue. Um, one minute of recovery gives the same speed as two minutes of recovery. So there's really no need in my mind for the average person with chronic stroke to go anywhere beyond one minute of, of rest in the, with these recovery periods if you're doing 30-second bursts like this. And in fact, our protocol, that's where we start just to get the speed up. And then we drop the recovery down to 30 seconds so that we can really try to get as many steps as possible. Um, because I think with, with this protocol, what we saw with this paper is that if you lose steps even further, like if you did longer recovery, you'd have even less steps during a session with HIT. that would probably decrease some of the outcome. So it's a give and take, like it, like, you, you want to give enough rest so the can, person can maximize their speed, but if you give too much, you're missing opportunity for more practice and more aerobic intensity. It, it's int- one thing that was really interesting to me is that aerobic intensity did not mediate the outcome. That was not what we expected, right? Like, we're really, I think it's a field right now, focused on monitoring heart rate during training and focusing on that as a target. And I think that is still warranted. And I want to make sure that's not a takeaway from this, too. Um, So the reason I say that I think it's still warranted is because even though heart rate didn't mediate the outcome differences for that study, what that study is looking at is what training parameters mediate the difference in outcome between these two protocols, between HIT and moderate intensity exercise. It's not saying what training parameters mediate the outcome of locomotor training in general, right? we'd need a control group that wasn't doing either any locomotor training to be able to know that. Um, and so, or you know, not doing even moderate intensity training to know that. Um, so I think that's an important direction for future study to kind of understand what are the big picture parameters that mediate outcomes. From this study, what we see is that speed matters and steps matter, um, but that's kind of where we have to leave it from what we can see today.
0: Hey, You found that HIIT produces significant gains in walking capacity in four weeks, but that 12 weeks is needed to maximize gains. The intervention ended at 12 weeks. Do you feel that if the intervention were to continue, these gains would continue to increase?
3: You know, I think, as Pierce mentioned before, there's a balance between, you know, how long are people willing to stay in the study you know, to, to reach more gains, um, versus, you know, extending, uh, longer on that. But I, I think if we would, um, dose the, you know, one of the really unique pieces of this is that we did testing at four, eight and 12 weeks to continue to prescribe exercise. And so I would assume that if we continued in that kind of four block path and, and, um, we saw gains in, in, in fast walking that we would see those continue. And, and my guess is, you know, if we continued it and stopped at 12 weeks and then just kept them walking at that speed, that the the outcome would, you know, probably be maintained during um, an exercise intervention. But I think if we were to continue to to dose and, and um, do the testing in four block increments, I think we would see have seen some more gains in that. I don't know, Darcy and Pierce, if you agree, but uh, I'd be curious on your thoughts as well.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I I don't know that, yeah, we don't know. Um, I I suspect the same. I think my gut is that we would continue to see some improvements. I also suspect there's probably some individual variability in that, like some people probably hit their limit even earlier than 12 weeks and other people could probably continue to improve well beyond that. But yeah, I think my gut says if we would have kept, on average, you know, we would continue to see some gains at, at probably a lower rate, you know, a mm-hmm. le- less amount of increase over time, um, if we were able to keep going beyond 12. Years.
2: Exactly, Sandy, that's personal, what I was just gonna say.
3: Yeah, I was gonna say the personal motivation is do they want to continue, um, yep. you know, in, in that same vein, beyond, you know, what they do, and how motivated are they to keep pushing themselves. And I think, like Pierce said, some people probably hit their, you know, maybe hit their plateau a little bit earlier, but but you know, regardless, these were great—you know—a great study that provided good outcomes and a good basis and a foundation for future work.
2: Yeah, my my question always is, you know, is when when we're talking about longer of anything, is I always feel like there's this trade-off between the potential physiologic benefit and the the person's psychological investment and willingness. If you think about like people who've not had a stroke, generally speaking, if you're, let's just say you're training for a 5k, right? You train for the 5k, you know, you run the 5k and unless you're like training then for like the next event, you might just maintain, you might just kind of keep doing what you were doing and not push yourself unless you were training, you know, for another goal. And I think a lot, I think it's, I think people with stroke are no different, right? Like they're, we when it comes to exercise, I think they train for a goal, right? And so I think, again, this gets back into the psychological and the individual variability. Some people you know, at 12 weeks would have met whatever that goal was they had in their head. Some people might not have been more motivated to continue. But um, I just think we know from the exercise liter- literature in general, that the longer you go, the more people kind of, you know, fade off in their in their commitment to doing it. And at some point, I think our goal in in stroke rehab, and this is not borne out by any of the data we're talking about today, but just in general, I think our goal is to not have people engage in the revolving door of physical therapy, right? It, with chronic stroke, where they come to therapy, they get better, they go home, they don't do anything. And then they're, you know, they, they decline, right? So Even if they could maintain the gain that they got at 12 weeks, that would be fantastic, right? Which I think is kind of another, a whole separate question um, and a a really interesting way that this work probably needs to go at some point.
0: Yeah, and and what you're suggesting, Darcy, then is, you know, in the future doing a study that looks at bringing these patients back after a four-week interval, seeing if they were able to maintain their gains. Yeah, yep, (laughs) that's the goal. You found that only only the HIT group had significantly decreased promise fatigue scale scores compared to the MAT group and only at the eight week time point. Can you talk more on the results you saw with the promise fatigue scale in the HIT group and some of the theories as to why you believe this improvement was seen only in this group?
1: Yeah, so first of all, just a caveat, since we only saw it at that time point and not other time points, I think we have to just be really, um, Careful not to overinterpret it. It's possible it's a fluke, you know, and that when we test with a larger sample or do it, you know, replicate that, that we might not see it again. With that said, we we saw similar improvements in a previous pilot study, and so that gives me some confidence that there's something here and that this is actually something real. And so there's a there's a couple possibilities I can think of for why more vigorous training intensity might decrease fatigue. Um, One is just physiologic reserve. So, you know, how fatigued someone feels in a day can sometimes be a function of their aerobic capacity and relative to their kind of metabolic cost for walking or other daily activities. So if you have a big gap between those two, right, if your capacity is well above the metabolic cost for daily activities, then you tend to experience less fatigue with doing those daily activities. and. What we've seen is that with this study, both groups, HIT and MAT, improved metabolic cost of gait. So, less metabolic cost to walk. Um, so, that improves that physiologic reserve. And, and both groups saw improvement in aerobic capacity um, measured in various ways. There wasn't any significant between group difference in aerobic capacity change or in change in the metabolic cost of gait. And so, I don't think that would explain between group differences that we saw in um, fatigue. Outcome. Um, so another possibility that could cause that could potentially explain that between group difference in fatigue is just thinking about fatigue as like neurologic components of fatigue. There's not great there aren't great ways to measure this right now, but the one one that is probably the most commonly done is using transcranial magnetic stimulation to measure corticomotor excitability. So how excitable um, the pathway is from uh, brain to arm or leg affected by stroke, um, and so we we did in a previous study look at acute changes in corticomotor excitability with HIT versus moderate intensity exercise on the treadmill, and found that HIT actually gave greater, significantly greater increases in excitability versus moderate intensity training. So there's some indication that training at more vigorous intensities might acutely immediately after the exercise cause a greater kind of activation effect to the nervous system. And it's that, that, that particular um, measure has also been correlated with self-reported fatigue. Um, so this is kind of all a little bit speculative at this point, but it, it's possible that some of the differences that we saw in fatigue could just be because that vigorous training intensity just acutely is is a little bit energizing. Um, as much as it is fatiguing, it also is energizing at the same time.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I bet a lot of us feel that after pushing ourselves with high intensity, just the endorphin rush that we can get from it. Um, so I, w- I would love to see uh, more on that as well. And you guys mentioned that, that more research should be done with a more definitive fatigue assessment in a larger trial, uh, which would be great to see. Uh, th- did this study warrant other research questions for you and your team that you want to build on?
1: So many. <laughs> so I don't know where to start with this. Um, one, I think the biggest one is that this is a this is really exciting findings and really as um, definitive as one could hope for. I think for from studying fifty five people, but we only studied fifty five people. And I think to really be confident that you know that that vigorous training intensity is is as much as as much better. That's not a right word. That to really be confident that vigorous training intensity is better than moderate it, to the extent that we saw, I think we need to study this in a larger sample of people. I think also to be confident that there we didn't miss any important safety issues, right? We didn't see any any concerning safety signals in, in these data, but with only studying 55 people, there's no way that we've seen everything there is to see in chronic stroke, which, you know, a highly variable uh, population with Lots of comorbidities and things that um, that you know need to be factored in. So I think it's it's really important to not you know just not not to make definitive conclusions off of a study with only fifty five people. I think we really do need a larger trial to be able to be more confident um, before moving forward in a big way in, clinically. But the other thing to me that's really intriguing is that. There's a a somewhat parallel trial that Catherine Lang and colleagues did with upper limb training, looking at optimal dose and, and varying dose of upper limb task practice in terms of the number of repetitions of task practice to improve upper limb outcomes. And that was a really well done study that found no difference across different doses of upper limb task practice. We're in the, with gate training now, we're seeing that there is this dose response effect and I'm really curious as to why that might be different between gait and upper limb practice, and really understanding kind of the mechanism, the neural mechanism of like what's changing, or maybe cardiovascular mechanisms. You know, what's changing? Uh, what's different about gait training versus upper limb practice that might explain the differences in outcomes that we're seeing in those two trials? Um, but yeah, those are just a couple of things that off the top of my head that are interesting next steps. Sandy and Darcy, what do you what do you think?
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with everything that Pierce said. I think that, um, I think for me, I'm most interested in, um, sort of the, the longer term effects of, of this kind of training. I'm really also interested in the health, the kind of the general overall health effects and whether we see any secondary prevention effects. Um, so I, there's, I, there's a, oh my gosh, there's a million ways to go, right? I think the very next step though, I agree hundred percent with Pierce. The very next step is we have to see if what we found holds up in a larger sample. That, that's that got to be the very next step, yeah.
3: So from our lab's perspective, you know, we were, were very intrigued by the high intensity uh, interval, so much so that Dr. Allison Whitaker, who was a PhD student in my lab, started asking questions about the acute effects of um, high-intensity interval exercise. And we see this very unique pattern uh, in young, healthy adults. And she's working on a paper right now on stroke. You know, the the constant up, uh, going up to that high intensity and then coming down, we think produces very interesting um, vascular effects. Um which may actually help blood pressure overall vascular health. So I think for our lab, that's one you know direction that we're we're really interested in. and if it, it if it improves the, those vascular effects, you know, would we see improvements in brain health? And I think for for me, you know, I'm thinking about these trials that we're doing, um, you know, should we be looking at other measures of of brain health or other measures of cognition that might be uh, improved by this vigorous intensity? So, I think, again, this is uh, just a very exciting avenue of of research.
0: Well, I love all those ideas, and I'm sure a lot of clinicians do. I've personally found myself asking, you know, what did their return to more community ambulation look like group to group? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I find as a clinician now, eight years into my practice, I'm very much like, what's going on once they leave here? So that, yeah, they they don't come back. And I also was curious about fall risk, too, just to see if there is a change in that. Um, especially if we're dedicating three times a week to this, you know, am I going to be affecting their balance as well? Uh, where I don't feel concerned that I'm not specifically addressing it. I, no, I, I love all those uh, avenues.
1: Yeah, we didn't measure uh, falls as an outcome, but we did measure steps per day. Um, we that's still kind of being processed and analyzed. Although, you know, I shouldn't speak before we analyze the data. But if I had to guess, I'd actually say that. I don't think we're going to see great improvements in that um, because what we've seen from other recent studies is that just improving someone's capacity doesn't necessarily translate into greater performance of walking in daily activities if you don't specifically target that. So I, um, you know, this study wasn't really designed to answer those questions. It was really designed to figure out the best way to build capacity. Um, but. I you know, we, we've measured it and we'll definitely be interested to see if, uh, if that hypothesis holds up or if there is some magic that, um, you know, if you get above some certain threshold of capacity that magically it does translate into improved kind of day-to-day walking performance.
0: Would you hypothesize that you would see results similar to the ones you got in this study with patients with subacute CBA?
3: I would, you know, I think the way this trial was designed, and will we see similar things? I, I would probably say no, because the if you're talking about inpatient rehabilitation, subacute, you know, we don't have the duration that we were tested here, and if our findings were to apply, we need, you know, eight and twelve, and definitely twelve weeks to really see the groups um, separate in their their walking outcomes. However, I think, uh, you know, it's challenging if you're looking at inpatient rehabilitation because the length of stay varies across patients. But I do think that looking at HIT and and thinking about, you know, the the walking intensity, we first need to look at feasibility, who who would benefit from HIT. You know, we still don't know who is the the ideal um, patient to really try to do that in inpatient rehabilitation or even an outpatient, you know, really early, you know, after they discharge, we don't know the ideal patient. And it's an interesting question and hypothesis to test. I would imagine if we were to apply all the principles that we've discussed here for what we saw in our trial, that those would, um, you know, probably guide recovery and walking. If, if individuals are, are, you know, able to do that fast walking and again, it's that speed that we've shown that really matters, and so if we can do that, I think we would see some outcomes. But again, what's the minimal time uh, or maximal time in in that subacute range? I think that's an interesting question to to look at, and hopefully this podcast facilitates others to start thinking about those those questions and, and advancing our the field in that way.
0: Yeah, that would that would be great, and um, also of course coming from a you know, are they safe to do this and That's something your study touched on as well, looking at um, adverse events, looking at the threshold. And um, I really appreciated seeing those results because I think that's always a concern for for patients and their families. Um, But of course that takes on a different realm when we go to the inpatient side. What is the one takeaway from this article you hope clinicians working with stroke patients implement into their practice?
1: I can start if that works and then we may all have a take on this. Um, so for me, I think, I just hope this gives more impetus for clinicians to think carefully about how they dose intensity. I guess to borrow a phrase from the, the ANPT campaign of the same name, intensity matters, (laughs) right? Um, like, you know, we, we know that like training at a moderate to vigorous intensity is recommended, right? To improve walking speed and endurance for people with chronic stroke. Um, but moderate to vigorous intensity is a pretty big range, and this study gives a really strong indication that being on the more vigorous side of that range is the place to be. I I, I say that with some confidence, but not full confidence, because like I said, we need I think a larger trial to really know that in the way that we you know we, that we want to to have more confidence in that finding. Um, but I think that's at, at the very least right now. As a clinician, I think I am, that's where my head is starting (laughs) and like, can I do vigorous and can I help have this person train at a vigorous intensity and only moving away from that if there's, you know, reason to safety concerns or feasibility concerns. Um, I think that's the, that's the main takeaway that I hope people get from it.
2: And I would say that I, I don't know as clinicians that we always think about interval training with our patients and i think that the way that you're able to get this vigorous intensity is through the use of interval training. The reason you're able to get the treadmill up to those high speeds is because you're doing it in an interval. And i think i would just like therapists to start to think about those the principle of interval training in general even if you are in subacute rehab and you're concerned about getting up to, you know, for other reasons for other safety reasons you might be concerned. Think about interval training because maybe it will allow you to maximize the speed they're able to do at that moment It is something. And again, we all have to remember that this is not a definitive clinical trial. And I really want to be very clear about that. I think in PT, we sometimes have a tendency to adopt things. I think there's principles here that you can adopt. But to say that now is the time to go implement this whole protocol, I want to caution everybody. Um, There will be more studies coming from this group that will give more of a definitive answer. And I think what you should take away from this is to start thinking about these principles rather than necessarily trying to replicate an exact protocol. And that's where I really love the principle of get them walking as fast as you possibly can and think about intervals as a way to do that.
3: Yeah, my, my perspective on the one takeaway, um, I think even with moderate intensity as the control group, because that's what we, we used, I, I still believe something is better than nothing. And we saw, you know, and again, I think it's therapists thinking about and being comfortable with prescribing exercise or walking intensity that gets the patient's heart rate even up you know, there's been numerous studies that show, have shown therapy barely, you know, reaches beyond low uh, intensity, and that there's been so many studies where where patients are 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 sedentary um, in the day, even work from uh, Darcy here, you know, in the community, and we see in the hospital they're sedentary, and so I, I feel like we need to do more as a profession and thinking about um, you know the the intensity dose, but that. We still saw gains with the moderate intensity. If your goal is to really improve their gait speed and their walking endurance, thinking about how you can implement, you know, intensity and start to intersperse that, intersperse that with your with
0: your patients and practice. Great. All really good takeaways for all of us. Any other insight or information that you learned from this study that you feel would be important to share with clinicians working with the stroke population? Stay tuned there's a lot more coming.
1: One thing that <clears throat> always bothers me is that there are no uh, treadmills and available or there are very few treadmills available that have height adjustable handrails. Yeah. <laughs> we do so many um, you know it's taken so much work to like find a setup like a very simple setup to, to you know challenge people to go faster on a treadmill that has a, you know a handrail that's set to a biomechanically appropriate height for for each individual It always just stuns me that that's so hard to do. It seems like that should be so much more clinically available. Clinically that we try to avoid is, you know, having people like really hunched over while trying to train. It's hard to go faster in that way. Um, Or likewise, like reaching up, you know, for a handrail just definitely challenges people's biomechanics in a way that's not as specific to their day-to-day kind of walking environment. So anyway, if there's, you know, more people pushing for having options available with height-adjustable handrails would make me have to stand on this soapbox less. We decided to enroll um, people across the spectrum from very slow walking speed at baseline to to almost back to kind of typical gait speed. We cut it off at 1.0 meters per second. So everyone was slower than 1.0 meters per second. but there were, there was a previous study, uh, a couple studies actually, showing that people who walk less than 0.4 meters per second at baseline tend to not respond to, you know, treadmill exercise and, you know, and to really not have meaningful gains on average from that type of approach. And so we did have a discussion at the beginning of the trial, whether we should include those individuals or not, um, and ultimately decided that we didn't have enough evidence to rule that rule out the possibility that they could have meaningful improvement with the more vigorous training intensity and with a longer intervention. That really hadn't been, there. this was the first study that really did, to my knowledge, that, that looked specifically at outcomes within people that walk less than 0.4 meters per second using a vigorous training approach for a longer, like a 12 week duration. And like our preliminary studies, also found that people who walked at that slower speed um, didn't respond to four weeks of HIT. Like they didn't really have meaningful gains after that. After that first four weeks. So interestingly, um, now we we, we, or we did a subgroup analysis just specifically looking within that subgroup. Um, and it's even smaller sample size. We're chopping up fifty-five into a smaller subgroup, so can't make too much out of it. But we, de- we did see meaningful improvements on average I can't remember the exact number, but well above, you know, established clinically important difference thresholds for the six-minute walk test um, within that group using vigorous training that hit for, for 12 weeks. And so it might be that we just needed longer durations or more um, greater intensity to, to make the, to move the needle. In people that start out with slower walking speed, so in hindsight, I'm really glad that we didn't exclude that subgroup. And so, I think a good lesson moving forward not to exclude subgroups unless you're absolutely sure that they're non-responsive. Um, and, and looking forward, I think it's an interesting, it's a really exciting possibility that we might now have an intervention that has evidence to, to you know of, of effectiveness in this population. If this pans out in a larger trial. I think it, it's also interesting because that's a subgroup that I don't think most clinicians would immediately think of you know for high intensity training. like we our kind of traditional model is that, that you know you might start out easier you know or mo- more moderate or, or even low intensity for someone who isn't able is really not able to walk as fast and then maybe build towards the higher intensity. And what our preliminary findings indicated is that that model might need to flip that it might be we especially need to target people that start out walking slower with more vigorous training intensity. Again, if this all holds and, you know, in a larger trial, but it's definitely an interesting subgroup finding from that, from this, from this trial.
0: Thank you for <laughs> addressing that. I think that was uh, important to talk about because that's, that's still a subgroup we see not only, of course, in inpatient, but we see that subgroup a lot in outpatient too. So thank you for that. Um, well, with Looks like we are at nine o'clock. Um, I did want to ask just one lightning round question for um, each of you to answer, because I think it'd be great for our listeners to get to know you better. Uh, when you guys started physical therapy school, what where did you think your career path was going to go?
1: I, I don't think here. I, I think in this direction, I knew I wanted to do, re- so I started doing research as an undergraduate. Uh, student and and really in stroke rehab. So I've been doing, you know, working in this sphere since I was a junior undergraduate student. So I I definitely knew that I wanted to be involved with stroke rehabilitation research and and I've always been interested in gait. But I don't think I envisioned having some of the amazing opportunities that I do now, like to collaborate with wonderful people like Sandy and Darcy on this level and um, to do the scope of of trials and science that we've been able to do so far and that we're going to continue to expand on in the future. I don't, I don't, I think I've been really lucky um, to get to, to do this really impactful work and to be part of it. Um, Yeah, so I guess I definitely envisioned being in this, in this area, but didn't really envision um, how far we'd be able to take it.
2: So I was a clinician for about six and a half years before I went back to get my PhD. So that was a, it was a long, a longer path for me. Um, And I think that I always had an interest in research and got to do a little bit of research um, during my PT program. But I certainly, I certainly never thought that I would, I would um, end up here. I really thought that I would probably be a clinician and, you know, maybe, maybe be a supervisor or something like that. Um, And, and. Um, I'm so glad that I, I just want to say to anybody who's out there, who's thinking about making, making a shift to going back to school, you can do it. Um, and it has certainly been incredibly enriching. And I feel like I am forever grateful as Pierce said, that this is the path that I ended up on with a lot of really great people, um, helping me along the way. But yeah, I, I, I love being a clinician. I still love being a clinician, um, but I think for me, um, this has been um, a, a great a great way to give back to the profession and um, in, a, in, a, in a, and to and to people with stroke in a different way.
3: I'm a, probably a little bit different because um, the my PT career was my second career, um, and so I when I came to Ku Medical Center, I joined the joint PT PhD. Uh, track. And so I was working on both degrees simultaneously. So for research, I came here purposely for that. I've always had an interest in exercise and cardiovascular health and stroke. So I'm so excited for the things that I have been able to do and stay in this space. But I don't think I really thought of the magnitude of the, the work or how I would build the collaborations and have these wonderful opportunities to, to work with various teams across the U.S. And, and internationally to really try to advance practice. And that's been really humbling to, to um, work with others both nationally and internationally and understand clinical practice across the globe and how we can make a difference in exercise.
0: Well, thank you for that. It was uh, all inspiring. I don't know if I'm quite at wanting to go for a PhD, but you've a little, little bit of a spark for me, so. <laughs> Well, thank you to all three of you, uh, Dr. Pierce Boyne, uh, Dr. Darcy Reisman and Dr. Sandra Billinger for being a part of this um, podcast for the Stroke SIG and really just for the the research and the passion that you put towards the stroke population. I know that we all appreciate it and looking forward to what trials and research come out of this one um, very much. So thank you again for being a part of this.